Gone is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright, and welcome to Bring It On a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, and I'm Roberta Radovich. Carrie Dan of NBC News recently reported that amid a moment of national reckoning on racial issues and the mourning of John Lewis, one of the country's most revered civil rights leaders, New numbers from the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll showed that American voters significantly more aware of racial discrimination and more sympathetic to those who are protesting to end it, even as the country remains divided over the prevalence of bigotry and its root causes. Ms. Dan added that the poll finds that voters in America are now more likely to say that people of color experience discrimination. To describe athletes kneeling in protest of racial inequality as appropriate, uh, to view the Black Lives Matter movement as a positive force, and to support the removal of Confederate monuments in public spaces. Starting off our two-part conversation today on the observation on the state of race relations in the United States, we have invited Dr. Charlie Nelms, who is hailed as a transformational servant leader, a motivational speaker, and a consultant with expertise in higher education. He is the former chancellor of universities in North Carolina, Indiana, and Michigan. Recently, Charlie was a key presenter at the June 5th Enough is Enough City of Bloomington Peaceful Rally organized by IU students and alumni. Charlie, welcome to Bring It On. I'm delighted to be here. Welcome, Charlie. You know, in these times, I've really had you on my mind quite a bit because when I think of matters of race, I think of your, of the way that you articulate it to, to me especially. Um, we've got so much going on. Give us a brief rundown now. Well, you're absolutely correct, Clarence. There's a lot, Cornelius, I'm sorry. There's a lot going on, and I'm afraid that we're going to see an increase in the intensity of what's going on in the coming uh, weeks and months. And what we have to do is to remain steadfast as a people to make sure that we are together. But let me just say right up front is that America is an amalgamation of cultures, classes, colors, races, and religions. And that's one of the defining characteristics of America. You take that away, I don't think you'd have America. So we have work to do. Um, and what we have to do is to be prepared to run the marathon. This is not a sprint. This is the marathon. But you know, there's a role for each of us to play. And our failure to play that role in a positive way will mean uh, uh, a less vibrant uh, America. And it will certainly uh, lead to a less stable America for our children, grandchildren, uh, and other generations. 
Charlie, you mentioned children. As has happened in the 20th century mid-civil, the mid-20th century civil rights movement um, that we're all mostly familiar with. And in other movements across the globe, it's usually young people who are finding a disconnect between their ideals and the reality of the situation they find themselves in. So what's the role of young people in carrying forward the mantle of uh, racial equality in the United States? Well, I think it's, uh, it's very important, but we have to work at this issue across generations. Uh, just last week, I guess it was, we lost uh, at least three giants of the civil rights movement. And uh, take, for example, when Congressman uh, John Lewis joined the movement, he was, uh, he was a very young man. Uh, and he learned uh, immensely from uh, the C.T. Vivians of the world, Abernathy, King, Son, and so forth. And so I think that while we are dependent upon the young generation, younger generation, it is important for them to understand the history, the culture, and the traditions of the movement, okay? And as I said at the, uh, at the peaceful protest march earlier this summer, is that we mustn't, and these young people and older people, mustn't confuse the march with the movement. Uh, and so understanding the history, the culture, and the traditions, I, I think is just so uh, important. And failure to understand those uh, dimensions, I think will lead to burnout before people, young people even get out of the gate. Uh, because what we, we live in this society now where people want action right now. Can't wait want it right now. And if I can't have it right now, then there's something wrong with it. So this whole notion of persistence and passion uh, uh, is just so important. But yes, we're dependent upon the younger generation, but we older people have to teach them uh, this history uh, because some people want to pretend that it, uh, it never existed. You brought up a good point. I know that I grew up in Berkeley in the 60s and we've been fighting this fight my whole life. And uh, you mentioned burnout. I, I know a lot of older Americans my age, um, we're to the point now that we are seeing some positive change. Uh, we're seeing some things we never thought we'd see as a black president, uh, Confederate uh, uh, monuments coming down. There, there seems to be a turn. But do you think that it's going to last? And what do we need to do to make sure that this lasts? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I can tell you're not much older than 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 all of you almost collectively, but uh, nevertheless, so, and I grew up in the deep South at the height of segregation. And so I, I have this testimony, firsthand testimony of how much things have really changed. And Cornelius, while you mentioned the monuments coming down, uh, a black president and so on and so forth. And while all of those things are positive, I think one of the things that we have to be careful with as a people and as a, as a country and that is not to confuse the symbols with the substance. And so while I'm happy to see, you know, a black president, having had a black president, I'm happy to see more uh, black people and Latinos and, and LGBTQ and, and different people serving in all capacities at the county level, the state level and the national level. Uh, what we have to do is to make sure that we have the policies and the programs in place that will elevate uh, and move people beyond uh, degradation and uh, um, um, lack of opportunity and that kind of thing. And so what we have to do is 
not have the symbols of racism and classism uh, be interpreted as somehow uh, an indication of our having overcome. Because one of the things you all will remember when President Obama was elected and Mr. Obama was elected, there are people who said that we're living in a post-racial society. Well, you just look around right now and you tell me if we're living in a post-racial society. Charlie, if the world was yours and in our world in Bloomington <laughs> is where I'm really thinking about in particular, if we could get one or two tangible activisms actualized in your from your perspective what would be what would those things be wow i mean that's a that's a heavy question in my and i don't want to be presumptuous in my response but since you asked me this question that is partially hypothetical and partially uh, uh real let me just say this to you i would focus on k-12 education and post-secondary education. And I would move more toward equity as opposed to just the, the catch, the excitement of diversity. And that's one of the things that I think has happened in this country, in this community. Uh, we've, gotten, we've become so excited about diversity that we don't much give a darn about equity. So if I could do one thing, it would be a more equitable, K-16 system, or pre-K-16. That would be the one thing that I would do. The second thing that I would do is <clears throat> I would focus on entrepreneurship for Blacks and other historically disenfranchised groups because you can vote, uh, you can get an education, but unless you control your economic destiny, I think that your long-term sustainability is not what it could be and it should be. Because we know that even uh, African-American people with a high school diploma, a college degree, even a PhD, make less money. A black person with a college degree, listen to me now, the earnings of that person is on par with a high school graduate who is white. So, so <laughs> while it's important to where we can swim and where we can eat, but if you don't have the dollars to pay for the meal, I don't need to say any more. So equity and entrepreneurship, two E's, equity and entrepreneurship. Uh, you mentioned education and we all know how you feel about education. Uh, recently, the California State University system uh, has stated that ethnic and social justice studies class is now a graduation requirement. Um, and I know that's a great start, but how do we start getting more of those policies implemented in K through 12, as you mentioned, which is a very important age for these kids right now? Well, what we have to do is to make sure we have the wheel. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can do almost anything else we want to do, you know, as a, as a school board, as a, as a community. We can do almost anything we want to do if we have the appropriate wheel. And so part of it, I think, has to do uh, Cornelius with the whole notion of school boards becoming better educated. Okay. I mean, there's just so, there's just wholesale ignorance on the part of many people who are in positions of leadership. Now, I'm not using ignorance to mean stupidity. 
or, or, or lack of intellect, okay? I'm talking about a lack of knowledge and appreciation for the history, the culture, and the traditions. And people attempt to legislate and to make policies without really understanding the contextual framework and the importance of young people, irrespective of color, gender, or age, in terms of understanding that history, the culture, because a lot of these, I believe that that uh, racism is learned. I just don't believe little children, or babies, are born racist. I don't believe that. And so I believe that we can teach people, we can expose people, we can model for people um, uh, certain kinds of expectations. But part of it is understanding the history, the culture, the traditions, and we can do that in the same way that we learn about Western civilization. Okay. Um, but anyway. If you're just tuning in to bring it on on WFHB, you're hearing now from Charlie Nelms, who is hailed as a transformational servant leader, motivational speaker, and consultant with higher education experience in various different areas of the conversation. He has held the highest leadership positions at universities in North Carolina, Indiana, and Michigan. Uh, so let's go back to uh, Cornelius and Charlie Nelms. You know, Charlie, one of the things we've seen are a lot of the peaceful demonstrations that, that have been going on from city to city, uh, which I think are so, so necessary. But the one thing that I think about, um, we have to get out and vote. If we're gonna have uh, people who are gonna represent us, it's important for us to get out there and get, have our voices told. The one thing I haven't seen is a lot of marching on state houses. I've seen a lot of city marches. I've seen a lot of regional marches, but state house where the powers go in all, this, all the, the uh, states in the country, do you think there's a reason why more people aren't protesting at the state level as opposed to the city level? Uh, that's a good question, and I'm only speculating here, but I would think that one reason for it is is that <clears throat> the communities in which we live are in closer proximity to us. Okay, so it's much easier, more convenient for people to assemble, if you will, on the city square or um, uh, uh, and to engage in that kind of interaction and dialogue and exchange. And so it's the convenience of it more than anything else. Okay, that's what my, my thinking is. And it's just easy to do it. You get in your car, you walk, you get on your bike and you can be there. Whereas if you're gonna go to the state's capital, okay, then that does require a level of planning, uh, coordination, and so on and so forth. But protesting at the state house, while it is important symbolically, I think that there are some things that we can do or must do to hold elected officials accountable. You see, voting and accountability are joined at the hill. They are. And unless we hold elected people at all levels accountable, how do we do that? We vote them out when they don't make good on the promises and the commitments that they make. We call them out when they make ignorant, racist, sexist, homophobic comments. We call them out when they oppose uh, legislation to make sure that uh, that uh, that uh, people have access don't uh, that people have access to good health care and, and good housing conditions. We call them out. We hold them accountable. And until we can all go vote in September, in November, rather, we can all go and vote. But unless we hold those people accountable that we vote for, it's all for naught. 
Charlie, uh, out in the land of protest and on social media and news media, and uh, you and I have even had a conversation about this. What's the connection between American racism and this COVID-19 moment we find ourselves in? Oh, well, you know, the connection is, is that uh, the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus has a dis disparate and disproportionate impact on Black people, on poor people, um, uh, so on and so forth, okay? And I just saw earlier where William posted the number of, of cases, or he referenced that we've surpassed the 4 million mark in terms of uh, a positive tests. But do you know we've had 144,000 people die? And those people, uh, Roberta, are disproportionately Black people, poor people, ethnic minorities. Okay, so that's one direct. Now, I know people will talk about comorbidities and all of that, okay? But, and that comorbidities, that can be traced back to access to healthcare, access to education. They're food deserts in many of the communities where black and brown people reside. So even just getting access to fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy foods and so on and so forth, uh, can be problematic. Disproportionate number of people smoking cigarettes and selling cigarettes. And, you know, I'm not opposed to people expressing their free will, but I can take you to some places in Indianapolis and in Bloomington where you'll find a disproportionate number of uh, uh, be uh, alcoholic beverage stores and places selling, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go there because I don't want you all to think that somehow I'm trying to uh, prohibit. I'm not a prohibition prohibitionist. But, uh, uh, but having said that, Roberta, I think the direct connection is that there are some societal conditions that have led to um, uh, uh, Black, brown, poor, historically disenfranchised people being at a disadvantage. And we see it playing out not only with COVID-19, but the rate of cancer. Do you realize that a woman, a Black woman who gets pregnant is about to give birth to a child is multiple times more likely to die during childbirth in 2020 than, than a Caucasian woman. And so COVID-19 is how we see it playing out now, but it plays out in cancer. It plays out in a whole host of other ways as well. Hypertension, you name it. And I'm gonna add on to that. It kind of goes <laughs> to the segue of my next question was a lot of the murders in the inner city that we're seeing uh, uh, in Chicago, uh, Indianapolis, uh, LA, um, you know, with the COVID virus going on, people locked up, now we're getting out, and it just seems that there's an increase in, in shootings and murders. Uh, now I see that uh, 45 is, is planning on implementing federal troops to some of these cities. Um, how do you think his reaction or lack of reaction and what's going on in the cities now um, is directly tied to COVID? So let me just say this to you. So... <laughs> So first of all, these murders, I mean, a little child in Kansas City, I think, a couple of years old, if that old, was, you know, hit by a bullet and killed. You know, I think what we have to do as a people, Black people especially, we need to say no to these, these, these thugs who are doing the shooting and the killing these games. We have to call them out and we should not allow them to hitch a ride 
on legitimate protests that's occurring in this country. We gotta call them out because they're hitching a ride. So when these murders and these gun incidents occur, the people in the neighborhoods won't even speak out against them out of fear or protection or some combination of those things. So first of all, I think that we have to assume some personal and collective responsibility as a black, when I say a people, as a black people, okay? In terms of a confronting and dealing with that, that's number one. Number two, I think that there is so much interest in, 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 in a, around being reelected on the part of the president of the United States and those down ticket seats in terms of the Senate, the House of Representatives and so on and so forth, that there's a great deal of collaborative enablement taking place where the president is being enabled and reinforced by some of his court appointments, by the people who serve in the Senate, by people who serve in the House. And uh, uh, so they're willing to sacrifice disenfranchised people and in, 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 in issues in order to maintain that position. So if you look at the whole thing with the federal, with the, with the troops that are in Portland and the president has indicated that he's gonna send to Kansas City and Chicago and all of these other places, he's using that as a means, I believe, to, uh, to appeal to his base and perhaps lead to more people voting for him and so on and so forth. So I don't think personally that it has anything to do with wanting to protect uh, uh, the citizens uh, in those communities. Because if we want to get guns off the street, we can get guns off the street. I go back to that little word, W-I-L-L. -L. Do we have the will? If you're tuning in today to join us to listen to Bring It On on WFHB, you've been hearing from Charlie Nelms, um, a, an administrator, thought leader, mentor to many presidents across the United States, and most recently, the author of From Cotton Fields to University Leadership, his personal memoir, which is also subtitled All Eyes on Charlie. Um, What's beautiful about that book is that uh, proceeds um, from royalties go to help support uh, scholarships for students at historically black colleges and universities. We're gonna go back now to uh, Cornelius and Charlie Nelms. You know, Charlie, one of the things that frustrates me greatly is we got out to vote for President Obama, well, Senator Obama at the time. And I look at the percentages of people who get to the ballots now, and, and it's disgraceful. This coming election, not only for president, but for our Senate, uh, as you mentioned, the House, is so imperative to this country. What do you say to these people that constantly say, my vote doesn't count? Um, it's not going to make a difference. Can you articulate the importance of this year's vote? Well, you know, that's a good question, uh, Cornelius. And what I, what I, rather than trying to lecture people or give them input, I just say, go and take a look at the election results for the last presidential election. Take a look at the uh, election results and outcomes in Virginia, where uh, some people, uh, one, one or two people or more won by one or two votes, okay? Um, go and take a look at the election results 
uh, around the country for county positions, city council persons, uh, state legislators, and so on and so forth. And if, if you really want to appreciate the importance of individual and collective votes, take a look at the most recent results. That's the best evidence about the significance and the importance of a person's vote, okay? That's number one. Uh, uh, number two, <clears throat> as I said earlier, it's not enough just to vote. We have to hold people accountable. So when elected people come back to their respective districts and they're holding public hearings and that kind of thing, uh, conversations with the community, it's important for those voting citizens and non-voters to be there to ask questions, to challenge, and so on and so forth. There is power in the pen. There's power in the voice. So even if people choose not to show up at a public hearing or public comment session, they can certainly express their point of view by simply picking up the phone, dialing a number, and leaving a message for the person who's elected and so on and so forth. And so it's a combination of all of those things, but I keep wanting to come back to this whole notion of how voting and accountability okay, are equally important. Charlie, I want to bring us to a topic that I know that you love and is close to your heart, which is arts, Black expression, the role of art and poetry and music um, in protest. Mm -hmm. So I know this is something that you've been thinking about a lot, which is what's the role of art and poetry and music in this moment? Wow, wow. You know, I, 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 I have this, uh, this quote that I think maybe I picked up on it or uh, reflect on my Angelo talking about everyone should memorize a little poetry for their soul's sake. And uh, if we're not careful, we can be overwhelmed by the social issues of the day. And I just think that music, there's a message in music. And you don't have to be able to sing like, uh, uh, like Mary and preach like Paul, whatever that saying is. You don't have to, but you know, you can, you can use your voice, whether it's through poetry, whether it's through song, whether it's through the spoken word, okay? Those are things that I think are very, those art forms are very uh, important in terms of soothing the soul without putting the soul into a, um, uh, a kind of period of uh, uh, being satisfied and so on and so forth, okay? But I think that it's important for us to have access to these various art forms, whether it be visiting a museum online or in person, whether it's going online, listening to a concert, be it classical music or uh, gospel music or Negro spirituals. Uh, so I think that arts, and if you go back and look at the history of Black people in this country, you know, go take a look at the Jubilee Singers in Nashville, Tennessee, okay, as but one example, or you the presence of the gospel choirs at, um, at, uh, at historically Black colleges and universities, or mass choirs and everything from Brooklyn to, you know, Mississippi to uh, you name it. Uh, so I, I just think that these various art, art forms are very important in terms of uh, creating a greater level of balance in the lives of, uh, of, of uh, disenfranchised people. Thank you, balance. That's exactly what I was, um, I know that's something you think about and share with me at least a lot. I don't want to put you on the spot, but sure. do you have a poem that's on your heart that would help 
us as we close out this segment with you, Charlie? Oh, I would say uh, hold fast to dreams. For when dreams go, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams. For when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. And that's one of my favorite Langston Hughes uh, poems. And so, um, so I grew up in an era of rote memory. And so you were expected to memorize and to be able to recite back when the teacher called on you. So if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for the doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies and yet don't look too good. I'm quit now. So, but the bottom line is, I just think for me, I always had something that I could reach back and call back. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair, you know? And so everything from Paul Lawrence Dunbar's candle lighting time to Maya Angelou's, you know, um, and, 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 and Brooks out of Chicago. So um, I just think it's important, yeah. But hold fast to dreams. We have a couple minutes left in the show, Charlie. <clears throat> I really would like to get your thoughts and share with our audience your feelings on right now today, the state of race relations in the United States. The state of race relations in the United States, I would say are challenging. <laughs> They're challenging. Uh, uh, we, had a, we, had a, we had an inflection point. And unless we do something to call attention to it, unless we take personal responsibility for the improvement of race relations in this country, okay? I think that we are, we, we may find ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in deep trouble. But I don't believe that black people and, and brown people can do it alone. I think that white people, oh, I hate the term white people. What is a white person? Come on, give me a break. What is a white person? But in other words, we must all take responsibility for improving. We must be the change we wish to see in the world. We, didn't say black folk and white folk and brown folk, we must be collective we. But at any rate. I thank you. Thank we you want to thank much. We want to thank Dr. Charlie Nels for sharing his astute observations on the state of race relations in the United States. He'll stay with us during part two of tonight's conversation as we now bring on Mr. George Middleton, a mental health counselor and author, Can You Be American and a Color Too? This is a continuation of three previous works from the author in addressing the connection between our collective mental health and race ideology. Mr. Middleton, who is also, we should note, uh, an alum of Indiana University, seeks to address the connection between mental health and the social impact of the race construct. He regularly presents workshops to service providers, to works workshops to service providers toward the goal of increased culturally relevant services. And now it's my pleasure to welcome Mr. George Middleton to bring it on. Welcome. Good morning. Good, good evening. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, George, we are all, I had the benefit of <clears throat> watching you in action. Uh, <laughs> during a Indianapolis startup ladies, which is a, a chamber of commerce type group, right? Um, right. And 
I was really impressed, George. First, beyond, before we even get into the conversation, I just want to give you kudos that you have a, 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 a kind of compassion about yourself, George, to allow people to enter into the conversation from where they start, right? You don't have an expectation that they are at the place that you are at or the place that a Charlie Gnomes would be at, but you accept them into the conversation starting from the place where they begin. And that is the kind of compassionate, loving um, exercise that I think is required if we're going to really tackle this conversation around race and deconstructing race. So I just wanted to say that to kind of set the foundation that you are coming at this conversation uniquely and specifically from the perspective of a mental health um, um, application. So do you wanna talk a little bit more about what your vision is, who is your audience, and what should we be trying to do as a community of humans in this moment right now? Well, thank you for that um, assessment of the experience that uh, you that I invited you to to, and you graciously uh, took me up on because your your contribution to that um, uh, event was invaluable. Um, before I get into the questions you're asking, I just want to. Caution everyone that you're probably uh, after the end of this interview either going to think I'm one of two things um, a genius or certifiably in need of mental health services. Uh, so I just want to put that out there because I'm coming at it from a totally different perspective um, built on the work of those that have come before us, right? So uh, and so in doing that, I just want everybody to understand that what you're going to hear, keep in mind that you're probably, if you identify as, as a racial color, black or white, that that is going to influence how you're going to hear and interpret the things I'm saying. So with that being said, my vision, uh, to answer your question, is to get the average American to understand the difference between racial identity and cultural identity uh, to get a collective understanding of terminology when it comes to race, because that is what's the most ineffective aspect to the process of trying to be effective in moving the ball forward is we are not all speaking the same language. We have different definitions of what a racist is or what racism is. Some of us don't even acknowledge that racism exists. So until we can all get on some level of collectiveness about this concept, and it doesn't mean that we all have to agree about everything. It, it, it uh, mostly means that we are agreeing to be collective in our approach so that we can move together as a society, as a society in the country. You know, uh, I was always taught growing up that the two things you never spoke about was religion and politics. And I think that we really missed the boat with uh, not adding racial relations in, in, in that dialogue. Uh, I think it's been swept under the, the rug for so long that anytime you bring it up, there's always the negative connotation attached to it instead of an educational connotation attached to it. Uh, could you speak on that just a little bit? And, and, and also uh, uh, the topic, can you be an American 
and a color too. That, that, that statement intrigues me. Okay, great. Religion is definitely one of the systems that is usually a default that people will revert to, to say that is the way to, that's, that's to get out of race free card. If you pray yourself out of it, if you just love your brother, um, then racism for all practical purposes does not exist. Except the problem with that is, is that the religion, the system of religion has adopted and internalized the race ideology. Uh, prime example is the image of white Jesus. Now, when I, when I bring that up, it's not that it should matter what color Jesus is, but the problem is, is that we know that the color that they're portraying Jesus to be is not, is not authentically accurate. So right there, you're starting with a spiritual deficit, a spiritual falsity uh, that weakens your ability to, to be uh, spiritually effective. Um, the labels, white Christian and black Christian, for example, what, what is the difference? What's the necessity for color in Christianity? Is there really a difference between a white Christian and a black Christian? You know, when you, when you think about that, uh, Dr. Nelms asked a great question, uh, what, is, what is white, you know? And I would add to that, what is black? And the, re the reality of that is that we're, we're operating inside a false ideology, an ideology that was created in the 1600s by the European for the economic purposes of the transatlantic slave trade. And that system has refined itself. Yes, slavery has been abolished in 1865, but tomato, tomato, because we are still today having the same outcomes as we had back in the 1800s. So I'm not necessarily interested in getting caught up in a game of semantics. I'm looking at the fruit that the tree bears. And that's where we get lost as we focus on the terms. And meanwhile, while we're arguing over the terms, we're, we're, we're missing where the money's going. And so that leads to my title, Can You Be American and a Color Too? I'm, I'm approaching all my work from a cognitive behavioral uh, uh, thera therapeutic uh, orientation. So I, I like to use Socratic questioning in, to, bring, to begin the conversation and to help, to help clients find their own authentic answers. So while I have my own answer to this question, the book, it's a workbook, challenges the reader to determine those answers for him or herself. So can, American is a label, black is a label, white is a label. And the book asks you to consider, are those three labels in alignment with each other or are there some conflicts with, with them? And then the, 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 there's a set of deconstruction activities in the workbook that is a, a set of scenarios in all of the systemic quality of life areas where you see disproportionate outcomes, education, finance, housing and loans, law enforcement, judicial, employment. And it's not meant to, the workbook is not meant to, to sit down and just do it in a reading and read in a sequential manner. It's meant to be used as a resource in addressing race wherever you are in your journey of addressing race. So uh, that's the overall vision goal 
and uh, orientation in the title. What age group uh, would this book be appropriate for? Well, I, I want to work from the top down because we're dealing systemic issues require systemic solutions. And so it has to be leadership driven. And then where the head goes, like my father used to say, who never graduated high school, but I consider to be the smartest man in the world. Wherever the head goes, the body will follow. So from a uh, symbolistic standpoint, uh, in most organizations, the head controls the culture and the outcomes of whatever its mission and service is. And families are a system. And so uh, to begin with the head of those households, for them to, to analyze their own uh, awareness and understanding of what race is and what idea, what uh, culture is, because they're not the same and they serve two different purposes. So my audience is really for systems, for service providers, and for anyone who actually identifies by a skin color. For our listening audience who are just tuning in, you're hearing right now from George Middleton. Uh, George has um, published a workbook that is part of a three-part series um, in addressing the connections between race, ideology, and the collective state of our mental health. So his current workbook, work, working book, <laughs> that's what I'm calling it, is Can You Be an American and a Color Two, Living Outside of Race, Transitioning from Color to Culture. And I think what's maybe important to, I'm going to use a little bit of an analogy just to make sure we're all living on the same page. Because George, I think you present very complex ideas that inherently we agree with and then methodologically it starts to unravel a little bit. So I wanna bring us back to the same page. I wanna remind us, and Charlie would know this in particular, that the conversation around parent advocacy and supporting students is only as useful and as strong as parents being empowered to define for their families what success means for themselves individually and then for their children, as, as you said earlier, that family unit. So that's how I enter into your conversation, George, is understanding that the ability to deconstruct race and then define or establish personal and then collective or communal understandings of shared culture is only as strong or as useful as our ability to define for ourselves what these things are um, and then break it apart and then put it back together again. So that's kind of how I enter your conversation. I don't know if that helps anybody, but I'm using an analogy around student and family personal definitions of success in order for parents to truly advocate for their students in institutions and systems of education and higher education. So, um, but what I wanted to get back to and give you the floor, George, is to help us understand what does it mean when we bump into your, I'm calling it the working book, um, in your workbook, when we bump into these words, cognitive, 
race deconstruction. How does the average person wrap their mind around what it is you're asking them to do? All right, briefly, I would like to address your, uh, your um, perspective on or concern about par parent advocacy and children as it relates to our education system. There, that, is a, there, that is a representation of a significant cognitive dissonance within our community, which I describe as the racially black demographic. Um, the education system is one of the primary areas and mo most important area leading to our disparities and disproportionate outcomes. We're actually teaching it in our systems. So when you expect a parent who represents it, who's a member of our community to go into what really is a Eurocentric based system and she is going to advocate for her son Jamal or Daquan with a teacher named Heather or Mary Beth, there really shouldn't be any surprise at the predictable responses and outcomes that come from that. And when I say these things, it's not meant as a criticism. It's meant as just a, a, a factual observation. There's nothing wrong with, with being Heather. There's nothing wrong with being Daquan. The, the problem is they don't match. And there is a plethora of research that supports same gender, same culture, education. Kids learn better from when the uh, models that they can see themselves being. And so the lowest uh, recipient of that benefit is the young quote unquote black male. The school system reflects him the least. And at about third grade, he starts to disengage from the process of, of education because there's nothing that reinforces who he is. The top end of the beneficial um, of the benefits of the Eurocentric school system is the white female. Because mostly everything inside school systems reflect her. And you would think that this stops at from K through uh, 12 and going into post-secondary, but the it actually worsens. Even when you get into the collegiate environment, the racial disparities and perceptions of color and differences based on those are even more palatable or palpable, excuse me. So you can't really advocate inside a system that doesn't reflect you. And most of our parents don't even understand the proper language. They're, they're not being uh, given the benefit of perception. They're being easily dismissed. And so the game continues and then it all leads to the school to prison pipeline, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And these aren't by, um, this is not a random design. It's occurring in every city. As a therapist, uh, part of my strategy is to look for patterns, patterns that work for you and patterns that work against you. And our system of education is one big pattern of ineffectiveness as it relates to our community. And we really have to start thinking outside of the race paradigm. If, if we as a community are serious about our children that we, we say we want educated, um, so uh, that kind of ties into your next question, which is what does it mean uh, when I use these terms, cognitive race and deconstruction? Race is a social construct. And that's the first step of misinformation 
and non-collectiveness that we are starting on. Many people, many intelligent people actually believe that race is a valid scientific concept when it is nothing but an idea from the European who, who found out that there's gold in them, their heels. How are we gonna get it? Well, here's how we're gonna get it. We're gonna, we're gonna go over here and tell them that they're just not quite as, and we're gonna give them this Bible. And you know, you know that old cliche, we got the Bible, they got the land. And it's, the game is still being played today. So the, the whole concept of race ideology starts cognitively. When you can buy in to you are, your identity is a skin color, that's the first step because there are roles associated with skin color. And this does, it doesn't matter your level of socioeconomic status, how many uh, initials you have behind your name. Uh, again, Dr. Nelms uh, accurately brought out an example of that where the, the, e the equivalent counterpart to any position, a successful position that a quote unquote black professional is in, his white counterpart out gets the benefit of perception and financial reward 10 times over. Purely based, I mean, same degree, same competence level. Although I would say for the, the black professional, he's had to work 10 times harder to get there. So he probably can outwork his white counterpart, right? Because he had to, it's survival. That was one of our mantras. You got to be not as good as, but three times better than. That's what we have, have you know, governed ourselves by. So that begins the cognitive. You're already starting in a mental deficit because if you take on the identity of black, you're already putting the weight on yourself that I have to prove myself. There's a lot of mental health implications that come with that. And we have normalized a dysfunctional system so high blood pressure is normal in our community. Stress is normal in our community. Uh, hypertension, um, you know, our eating habits, all ways that we have used to cope. And it's normal for us now, but it's actually not healthy for us. So what we keep doing is repeating the definition of insanity by taking an irrational concept of race ideology and say, okay, we'll use this race ideology and make it better. So we'll do things, we'll say words, I call them racial oxymorons because words are very powerful. But we'll say things like race relations. Well, in race ideology, the only relationship that you can have is where one is the master and the other one is the slave. That's the only way, and it doesn't matter how well-intended you are. You can, you, um, you know, I have a lot of friends, I don't call them white friends because I don't call people by color, but they identify as white and they really want to do well, they're intelligent and they mean well, but part of white identity means that somewhere in your deep inner recesses of your subconscious, on some level, you're just a little bit better than anybody who identifies as black. So, hey, George, you know, I'm not racist because I like you. Look at me, look what I'm doing, you're my guy. And he means well, he's genuinely, you know, sincere. But it's still, there's that air of superiority. You know, look at what I am doing that these other white people aren't doing. So I'm not racist. So you're playing mind tricks with yourself. And then we as the black identity are relegated to accepting that because we don't believe that we can control our own circumstances. Everything we do 
is somehow connected with the white identity. So bringing those type of uh, awarenesses uh, to the forefront, to our, our cognitive awareness on a conscious level, just so that you can at least be aware of thinking as it comes to race. You mentioned uh, a couple of things that really resonated, but uh, my post-retirement uh, work has been with children, something I never saw coming. And the interactions between a lot of the uh, kids of different colors has, has been uh, eye-opening to me. And you kind of mentioned something about the head. It's got to start at the head and work its way down. But as I look at, at a lot of these children and what they're going through, they really need help. And you know, you mentioned the mental health aspect of it, and, and they're really suffering because they see these differences. So how can we not only educate the parents, but also give the kids the tools to start off in the right direction as they start their journey towards in this world? Great question, uh, especially from the educational system. The, the educational system, I would say uh, second only to the church should be leading the charge in disseminating and conveying the actual knowledge about race ideology. The educational system is complicit in teaching our children that their identity is a skin color with a history only associated with domination and trauma. That's not a good place to start a young person a mind who's has a powerful mind, you can put anything in that kid's mind and that kid will rise to that level. And what do we do? We saddle him with this albatross around his mental neck of being a color. So that's why I really wanted to, to, I know what I'm saying sounds just so off the beaten path, but just think about it. We're telling our kids, your identity is a European label. And because of that, you have, to, you have to have the talk and you have to be this way and you can't be that way. We're giving our kids at the most powerful uh, development aspect of their uh, development, a list of don't do's. Don't do this, don't do that. You're not as good as this. You're gonna always be black. So you're just operating on survival mode. We're damaging our kids and it's normalized in our system of education. And, you, and there's nothing in any of these curriculums that talk about the reality of race being a social construct. And no one's saying this, not that I'm, I'm doing a lot of research and no one is addressing this. Today in America in 2020, the majority of Americans believe that race is a scientifically based construct that you can uh, tell someone's race through DNA, through genetic testing and all the most prominent geneticists will tell you it's not so. And so if you, if you just start with that clean slate right there, you're freeing up and, and knocking down 90% of the obstacles that our young children are gonna be are faced with today. Uh, there's nothing worse than, and we all here know the first time when, in our lives when we realized we were different from everybody else. It's called, it's called negrescence. The first time you realize you were black because we're not normally uh, wired to think of ourselves by skin color until we run into an experience and a social environment that tells you, hey, you are not 
able to do this because of that. So uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question succinctly enough, but we have to start with the leadership of our education system to be honest about the falsehood of race ideology. George, we are going to have to have you back on and spend more time um, working through uh, picking up what you put in down. It's so incredibly invaluable. Indeed. We want to thank Mr. George Middleton, a mental health counselor and author of Can You Be American and a Color Too, for joining us to add a fresh perspective to our conversation this evening on observations on the state of race relations in the United States. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea, an event, or a happening for us to share, send an email to our volunteer staff. That address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we're sharing everything and anything affecting the African-American community for our listening off audiences in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. You've been listening to Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? You've been invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News. Or again, you can always visit WFHB's news website at wfhb.org slash news. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone Jr. with help from WFHB news director, uh, news department director, Kate Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam. Graphic promotional illustrations provided by William Hosea with additional background tracks by the one and only David Baker. For WFHB, I am Roberta Radovich. And I'm Cornelius Wright. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. 